Well, I don't know what you expect from a main message on a Sunday morning. I know that somewhere in my past, there was a title, I don't know if it was by Denny or if it was by Philip Rudolph, but how to prepare and deliver life-changing messages. So I don't know if these messages are life-changing for you or not. There's also another scripture in the Old Testament. I didn't look it up. I don't know the reference. It talks a little bit about here little, there little, line upon line, line upon line, here little, there little. So life, so a message, a main message can be a life-changing experience for you. Or it can be just a line upon line, here a little, there a little. And actually we need both. <laughs> we need both. Uh, someone has said, I don't know how accurate it's true, but life is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. <laughs> We need that inspiration to do something, but then it has to come down to just hard work. <laughs> so, we have a message this morning, and I feel like I'm just teaching through First Peter, and it's almost feel like maybe it's just line upon line, here a little, there a little. But I trust it is here a little, and there a little. And if it's life-changing for you, praise the Lord. We haven't prayed yet this morning, so why don't we stand for a word of prayer? <clears throat> so Lord, we are grateful to you. We are grateful that you came, that you came to deliver the captives and to preach the gospel to the poor. You came to deliver. You came to show us that you care, to show us what a righteous life looks like. And to you came, Lord, to deliver us from the enemy, the devil. We thank you, Lord, this morning, that great things you have done. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do your work in the service here now, in the preaching, the teaching of your word, that you would blow upon it your own illumination in each one of our hearts here. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done, and we trust you for what you will do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You can turn to First Peter. Last message, Peter was exhorting his people to cultivate Christian graces. And uh, what I had last time was finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love us, brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. And P Peter was quoting scripture, but to bolster his advice of what he was saying he then wrote he then brought a portion out of psalm 34 and if you if you are in first peter chapter 3 in verse 10 the first the first word in verse 10 is for and that verse is the only one that's not in the old testament then, uh, then 34 begins, he that will love life. So for means for, uh, for the scriptures say. So he's quoting scripture there from verse 10 to the end of verse 12. And so, and I'm going to read that. For he that will love life and see good days, let him re refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. 
Now, as an evangelistic tool, Bill Bright, he was, I think he was probably the organizer of Campus Crusade for Christ. He, as an evangelistic tool, he developed or popularized, I'm not sure, the four spiritual laws. And it's just an organized way of presenting the gospel. And it's, it's a takeoff. You know, we know what natural laws are. You know what gravity is. If you drop something, it goes down. There's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a certain thing. The, the natural laws are established and they're going to operate. And he just take, took off on that and said there are spiritual laws that operate. And, and if you, if we adjust our natural lives to, uh, to coincide with natural law, we should adjust our spiritual lives to coincide with spiritual law. We should adjust our lives to correspond with reality. And the first of the four spiritual laws is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. A spiritual law. The second spiritual law is humanity is tainted by sin and is therefore separated from God. As a result, we cannot know God's wonderful plan for our lives. Third law is Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through Jesus Christ, we can have our sins forgiven and restore a right relationship with God. And then the fourth one, we must personally place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior in order to receive the gift of salvation and know God's wonderful plan for our lives. <clears throat> now, I have a little bit of reservation how these laws are presented. They, they do cover the bare, the bare bones, the, bone, the, the framework of our relationship with God, but they do seem to give a little more emphasis on God's wonderful plan for our lives than what Jesus did. Jesus actually did say that, you know, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, I must be first. Um, I will be the absolute authority in your life, and you do things my way. And so uh, that these laws seem to have a little bit more humanistic emphasis maybe <laughs> than what Jesus did in his predicting but there are some laws and there are bare frameworks and you would hope that someone who comes through the Lord that way can then actually get deeper and a better understanding but in Psalm 34 the reason I brought that out is in Psalm 34 the last verse that I read there in um, verse 12 the last part of that verse no, the last verse is a spiritual law. And here's how it is quoted by Peter. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That is a spiritual law. And it's a spiritual law that applies to me and applies to you. And. And it's, it's an absolute. The Lord, those, he, he, okay, let's say it this way. I'm going to see it in the other translation. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, the word doing evil is obviously in this sense, I would think the context is probably someone who has who rejects light and truth. They do evil. They reject the light that they have. And so, just as a balloon with helium rises, and just as a stone drops, in the same way, the Lord acts in the way He said that He He will towards those who do right and those who do evil. So. In light of that, what is Peter's advice? Well, do what is right. <laughs> That's his advice. Work. If, if you do what is right, you are working in sync with the way the moral universe works. You're in sync. 
But here's the thing. That's how God operates. God operates in sync with the moral universe. And so if you do what is right, God will be open to you. His prayer, he, he will listen to your prayers. But on a people level, it's not actually quite the same. On a people level, the spiritual laws don't apply quite in the same way. It's a general principle that if you do good, and I, I just thought to, ex, to explain what I'm talking about, I'm going to look at Proverbs. Proverbs are not promises. They're principles. I mean, at least from chapter 10 and so on. And uh, it, it actually varies a little bit there. Uh, I'm going to read a few Proverbs. And it's Proverbs 16.24. Here's a general principle. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. That's an absurd truth. Um, pleasant words. They're sweet. They're healthy. Proverbs 15.16. Better is little. With the fear of the Lord, then great treasure and trouble therewith. The general principle. That is true. But then we have some proverbs that look like promises. Proverbs 16.7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, <laughs> how about that one? Is that a promise? That always true. How about fifteen uh, Proverbs fifteen one? A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Well, that is the way things generally work, and how things ultimately will going to be. Ultimately, everything will be straightened out. We will be rewarded for our good behavior. Sometimes now, but definitely in the future. That's the point. God is going to, he, you, you, when, when you do what is right, on, on, the, on God's level, it is an absolute spiritual law. You will get what you get. On a human level, maybe. Your experience here will be maybe. So, so do good. But if you insist on cutting other people off, uh, disrespecting them or cheating them, or participating in quiet quitting, I think we heard that last week, right? If you insist and persist on violating God's commands in words or deeds or sex, just know that the entire Universe is going to work against you. You won't win. Even on a this level, you might not. Win, you won't win generally, not. But on the ultimate level with God, you just will not win. <clears throat> Peter even asked a question in verse thirteen, and that's where we're going to. We're, we're today. We're going to go down to verse fifteen. So we're going to go through 13, 14, and 15 in a line upon line. He actually says this, do good, do what's right. For who is he that will harm you if you be followers of them which is good? If we live as Christians ought to live, it ought to be the norm to have good relationships with non-Christians, um, with the with the non-churchgoer, with the divorced and remarried, with the Muslim. I say even with the homosexual, we ought to have good relationships with them because we are doing good. Because people, Peter is talking about the general public when he asks, who is there that will harm you? If you bring general benefit to, to every situation, you can be trusted. You do not take advantage of them. 
You don't speak evil of them behind their back. And, and you're trusted that way. You smile. It can be seen that you care about them. And who in that situation, if that's how you treat people, who is going to turn around and stick it to you? That's what Peter's asking that question. Who's going to do it? He said, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of them that is good? And that would be the perfect world. <laughs> and that's where John D. Martin, when he often says about uh, if, if everyone would act like Christians are supposed to act, then you would have Christ's kingdom on earth. <laughs> that's what he says. And that is what we are to do. We are to, to act that way to everyone. But we're not there yet, and Peter knows that. And that's why we have verse 14. But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, now what? Well, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, I have many needs, but I do some things right, some things rather well, I should say. I have a good working relationship with my superiors at work. I have for many, many years. And I had a co-worker years ago, he's not living anymore, who did not have a good relationship with his superiors at work. So we talked on the phone. He's a driver, I'm a driver. And we talked on the phone, and I told him my philosophy. I told him that, you know, work, they have their demand. The, the, the dispatchers, they're trying to get their work done. They have their issues. They have their crunches. And if they ask a favor of me, if I can, I I will um, oblige to their favor. I will do what I can to help them out if they're in a pinch. And... And they like that. And I said, in the same way, when I want a day off or something like that, if they can, they will give me off. They will, they will, in other words, it's, it's a reciprocal relationship of goodwill and trust that we actually know that we care about each other and it's a benefit. And I was sharing that with him. That's how my relationship, I have a good relationship with. Oh, no, this is terrible. They're just, rah, rah. Oh, no, this is how it works. I, I was sharing with him what I thought was a benefit. And in the office one day, just out of the blue, he just begins, and everybody's there, uh, dispatcher's there, some other driver's there, it was just full. Yeah, Earl, he was bragging the other day how he, and I forget exact words he used, but basically he said that I was... Um, almost like making fun of their, but I was just simply, he just simply completely um, derailed me in that I had completely ulterior motives for how I related to my superiors, publicly and spitefully. <clears throat> now what do I do? After his tirade. What does Peter say? But. And if you turn. If you suffer for righteousness sake. Happy are ye and be not afraid. Happy is that Greek word that is used in the other places as blessed. That I'm blessed. Because that happened. I'm to consider myself blessed. <laughs> That's actually what he is saying. <clears throat> if I did what was right and then am reviled and have false motives ascribed to me, I am to consider myself blessed and not to be afraid and I'm not to be troubled. Now, I shouldn't be afraid. Now, 
here, here's, here's, here's where it becomes challenging. What if my boss would actually have believed what my coworker said? I mean, he could have, maybe he would have just found a reason to fire me. I mean, if he would have, the, the thing that it was, it was so far off the wall and the character of the other co- the ones noted, it wasn't believed. <laughs> But it could have been. And there are situations where that happens, where those things, those false accusations happen, and they are believed. And you're fired, and you could suffer financial loss. Uh, they could, I could be just simply keep on working there, but I'm defamed before uh, in front of all the other employees. So my, my status of what people think of me really goes down. Or they could put me on social media, and I become famously infamous, you know, the, the whole thing, uh, but Peter says, don't be afraid of their terror. Don't be afraid. If you suffer for doing right, you are blessed. As Matthew 5 says, great is your reward in heaven. I'm not going to go back there, but you're familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount. Said, so uh, if I would have gotten fired, my retirement account would be a little smaller if I f- suffer a financial loss. But my true retra- retirement account just got a big boost. So, I'm to rejoice. I just got a big boost in my heavenly rewards by suffering wrongfully when I did right. And, not only that, now I'm not just a common Adopted child of God. That's not common, is it? <laughs> We're special. Adopted children of God. But I'm one of the prophets, is what it says there in Matthews 5. So so did they to the prophets which were before you. <laughs> now, you have to understand that the example I'm giving is, is doesn't hardly even count compared to what. But it was just it's a situation of doing what is right. And don't be afraid. For someone facing a powerful physical energy, like a prosecutor in a, in a courtroom, or someone who is able to destroy your life in one form or another, in one area or another, to tell a person to not be afraid in that situation is quite a statement. Don't be afraid, Peter said, but this person can destroy me. Don't be afraid. How does one do that? Now, fear is actually a good emotion. Fear is what kept me mostly. I mean, I didn't. When I was trimming trees with a chainsaw in our backyard, fear kept me being really careful. Now, maybe the proper fear should have kept me on the ground because I didn't get a professional one to do it. But fear is a good emotion. It's good to be careful when crossing a road because you know what can happen if you do it wrongly. If you're an electrician, you've got to have a proper fear of what you touch. So fear is good. So why are we told, don't be afraid? Because they are, they can be quite ferocious, your enemy. They're very scary. They can actually harm you. What other famous scripture comes to your mind when you think about not fearing people? Does anybody have any idea? Yes. Okay, that's right. That's not the one I'm thinking of. That, that's good. Hey, actually, that is, that's so along the line we're going. But there, there's a verse that talks about not fearing people. <clears throat> that's the one in Luke, Luke 12. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that can kill you, the body. And after that, they had no more they can do. But I will forewarn you whom to your fear. Fear him after you have killed him, have power to cast into hell. Yeah, I say fear him. So fear is relative. Uh, this is a story. This is not a true story. I went out to the food, uh, out to my, out to our uh, woodlot a little bit ago. I had just sprained my ankle a few days ago before that, so I was uh, walking carefully because I was afraid I would 
re step on a branch and retwist it, but I wanted to go and check something out back, and so I was walking carefully. And I came around the last tree, and there was a she-bear. And she looked down at me, and she growled at me, and then she started running at me. And I looked around, and I saw two cubs behind me. And the fear of injuring my ankle disappeared. <laughs> Do I need to explain anything more? <laughs> There's a hierarchy of fear. Um, Clark's commentary says, he who fears God needn't have no other fear. Now, I'd like to have it a little more nuanced than that. Um, some people are just bold and fearless. Others are more timid and fearful. Fear of man is real. And to be in a in a threatening situation is a fearful thing. I mean, it's real. We are people, and we you cannot eliminate those thoughts and emotions and feelings. Fear of consequences is a reality. And I just think of those that John talked about, those that are ministering in the in the Ukraine war zone and how they're going into battlefront. There is a fear there. There's a, there's a healthy fear there. What God is calling us is to a hierarchy of fear. The greater fear has preeminence over the lesser fear. So there's fears on many levels, but then there's a fear that's on top. And that, that, that hierarchy is common in the scripture. When, when Jesus said, no man can come after me, uh, if any man will come after me, he must hate his father, his mother, wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, his own life, or he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's comparative language. Jesus comes first. Everything else is subservient to that. And Jesus is unapologetic. He does not apologize. I'm first, and I must be first. In fact, if I'm not first, I don't want you. I mean, you can't get blunter than that. Now, we know that Jesus cares, and we know that he stooped down. He knows we're made of dust, and we've we got to keep that in mind. We've got to keep that in mind. We are made of dust. We, but when it finally comes down to it, if I cannot be first in your life, you're out. But, so he says, hate them. I mean, hate father and mother. But it's comparative language. <clears throat> Those who commit to Jesus' condition then relate to their family and children and even their own life. But they do it in relationship with the, how the Lord wants it done. That, that's, the, that's the point. And that's how it is in the hierarchy, hierarchy of fear. Fear God properly first, and then don't be afraid of their terror. So, don't be afraid. And then he says, neither be troubled. Be not afraid, neither be troubled. Is this redundant? <laughs> Is fear, being afraid, the same as being troubled? Jesus actually said the same thing, exactly as Peter did. It's in, in John, uh, yeah, yeah you, well, you can soon. John fourteen twenty seven. he just said, the last half of the verse, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, there's two things going on here. Jesus has it turned around, troubled and afraid. Peter has it afraid and troubled. Does anybody know what the first part of that verse is? I, I said the last part. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Anybody have any idea what the first part of the verse is? Okay, no button by memory. I'll read it to you. First part of the verse, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give unto you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the context there. 
A troubled heart and having peace are opposites. Like light and darkness, they cannot operate, they cannot occupy the same heart. A troubled heart and a heart that's at peace don't go together. So if you do what is right and then face or experience opposition or threatening or loss of some kind, then we can become troubled. I did what was right. I was genuine. I was honest. I went and spoke to the person what I thought I should, and I expected this kind of response. Instead, this bad situation came out of it. I wasn't expecting it. And that's troubling. And I get doubtful. I'm not sure about this. I was doing what was right, and now I am suffering because of it. I didn't expect this, and it troubles me. You know, that can happen when we have false expectations. Here's a false expectation. If I do good, something good will come out of it. That is a false expectation on, on this on the human level. Because remember, if you, if you, if a, if a, someone, a soft answer turns away wrath, for example, yeah. So someone comes against you harshly and you respond graciously, you do what's right, and then they just mow right over you. Well, it's a false expectation. <clears throat> Sometimes something bad comes out of it. I mean, okay, the false expectation, if I do good, something good will come out of it. But sometimes something bad comes out of it. So we are troubled. So the question here is, is your heart troubled this morning about something? Are the circumstances of your life been confusing? Did you begin with ideals and they didn't turn out like you thought they would. Is there opposition from people you didn't expect them to come from them? Peter gives us an answer. What to do. It's a way of peace. So he says, do not be afraid, nor be troubled. And what is verse 15? He says, but. And so here's the answer. <laughs> You're suffering you are, this is the answer. Don't, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, but, but, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Every apologetics ministry probably that there is has this verse, verse 15 1 Peter 3.15 as their theme verse. This is the apologetics verse. Um, answer. To give an answer is the word apologia, and it means to give a defense, to give a reason. But the main part, the foundation of this verse is the first part. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. So don't be afraid, don't be troubled. We, we get now what that means, but what does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your heart? Did you ever think about it? What, does anybody want to volunteer? What, what does this mean? Anybody have an idea? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Now we say, well, set him apart in your heart as holy. Well, what does that mean? So that's what we want to look at. Whatever it is, it is the alternative to a fearful and troubled heart. It brings peace. This sanctifying the Lord in your heart is intended to bring you peace in troubled situations. <clears throat> what is that in verse 23, uh, Psalms 23, 4? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What time I am afraid, said David, I will trust in thee. We are not careful, said Daniel's three friends, to answer thee, O king. Our God can deliver us, but if not, we will not worship the image. Was David, when he was saying these things, was he sanctifying the Lord God in his heart, you think? When I'm not afraid. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They knew what was coming. Their harm was coming their way, but they said, we're not even careful to answer you. Were they sanctifying the Lord God in their heart, I wonder? The shadow of death and no fear. What does it take to cause your heart to fear or my heart? And how do I overcome my fear? I think A.W. Tozer's most famous, one of his most famous statements, which shed some light on this issue. He said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he goes on to say that if you were able to extract from someone their idea of God, you would be most able to predict their future spiritual journey. Your view of God. Who is our God? The eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing God. I'm going to read here what Barnes said. Barnes is a commentary. Says, what is meant by our sanctifying the Lord God? It cannot mean to make him holy, for he is perfectly holy, whatever may be our estimate of him. And our views of him make no change in his character at all. So when we're talking about sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, it's not doing anything to God. God is holy, and even our view of him doesn't change him. So we're not looking at that. The meaning Therefore, must be that we should regard him as holy in our estimation of him or the feeling that we have towards him. That is what we mean when we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, he is holy and he cannot be more so. This hallowing of his name, if it happens, happens in us, not in him. Our estimation of God is what is where that hallowing happens. Now, Clark says this. He said, perhaps we should understand Peter's words thus. Uh, sanctifying the Lord God in the heart. Entertain just notions of God, of his nature, his power, his will justice, goodness, and truth. Do not conceive of him as being actuated by such passions as men. Separate him in your hearts from everything earthly, human, fickle, rigidly severe, or capriciously merciful. Do not confine him in your conceptions to space, place, space, heaven, or earth. Endeavor to think worthily of the immensity and the eternity of his nature. Conceive of him as infinitely free to act or not to act as he pleases. Consider the goodness of his nature. For goodness in every possible state of perfection and infinitude belongs to him. Ascribe no malice to him, nor any work, purpose, or decree that implies it. Remember that he has wisdom without error, power without limits, truth without falsity, love without hatred, holiness without evil, and justice without rigor or severity on the one hand or fickle tenderness on the other. End quote. You know, we sang that song this morning, um, God Moves in the Mysterious Ways. If you look at that song, that actually has it in, and, and in verse 3, the first line is, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. 
That's that's hallowing. That's is is an exhortation to to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. And of course, it's in the troubles of life. That whole song actually encapsulates this this thought. Now, so we're to sanctify the Lord. Many believe unbelievers do the opposite. They do the opposite of sanctifying the Lord. They vilify God. And they will say horrible things about God. They will say that God is a cosmic child abuser because he put on purpose his son uh, on the cross and, and watched him suffer. He must be a horrible father. Um, only an evil father would do that. They, they say he's a genocidal maniac commanding the destruction of people groups. He's a control freak. He has an insatiable appetite or ego that needs to be always on top and is angry with any kind of competition to him. And they vilify him. Now that's the opposite of sanctifying the Lord in your heart. Now, now you get the picture of thinking thinking noble, right thoughts about God is is sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. And that when you when you think properly of God, both his righteousness and his justice and, and everything else in between, then you have a basis to overcome this fear. <clears throat> Because God is good and holy and right and pure and kind and just. But let's get a little closer home. We talked about the unbelievers and how they vilify God. Now, Barnes says it this way, and I, I couldn't say it any better, so he said it this way. He said, many admit the doctrine that God is holy in their creeds, who never suffer the sentiment to find its way into their hearts. So we believe it intellectually. But we actually, uh, we're not experiencing it. And this is how it is, how we know. Though they are right on this subject in the articles of their faith, but in their hearts there may be murmuring and complaining. In their creeds he is spoken as just and good, but in their hearts they regard him as partial and unjust, as severe and stern, as inamiable and cruel. Those are Christians. Those are us who do that, at least some of that. <laughs> Sometimes we think ignoble thoughts about God. Brothers and sisters, that is where our battle lies. When Eve began to doubt the goodness of God, she became vulnerable. Just like that. Now, she did some other things as well, but one of them was she was no longer sanctifying the Lord God in her heart. If she would have sanctified the Lord God in her heart, she would not have believed the devil. And neither will you or I. That is where the battle lies. So, what is the answer? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that statement is true. And now... The last phrase for today, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And a couple other translations, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And the paraphrase, if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Be prepared. Be ready. 
the context is in non-Christian asking you questions. Maybe challenging you a little bit. Maybe poking you a little bit to see what's in you. To see what you're made of. The time to prepare for an answer is not then. <laughs> the time to prepare for an answer is now. Ahead of time. Can you explain some good reasons why you, to an atheist, why God exists? Why you think God exists? I remember that years ago, and, you know, I had some basic understanding. Well, you, if you're an atheist, you must believe in evolution. Well, evolution is like a tornado going through a junkyard and creating a Boeing 747. It's, it's an illustration, but it's not real deep. Although, it, 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 you know, you can go a little deeper than that. Or the, the, the one I had read about, um, you can actually do it, is you get a hundred monkeys and you give them typewriters, and they're all typing. And you come back 100 million years, 100 million years later, they'll have the works of Shakespeare all organized. <laughs> it actually, it just won't have. The whole point is, it just won't happen. So you can have arguments, but what 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 would you what would you say to someone who doesn't believe in God? You know, you have the cosmological argument. You have the irreducible complexity argument. You have the fine-tuned universe argument. You have the moral universe argument. You have the information argument, which information only comes from a mind and that kind of thing. And on and on and on. Uh, do you prepare yourself to answer the skeptics and the unbelievers? God says... Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and then be ready or be prepared to give an answer or a defense. You have a hope. There's something in you. You, you, have, you, have, you have an eye on something that can't be seen. And because your eyes are on something that can't be seen, you act different. The other people are not seeing it, but they see you with an eye on something they can't see, and so they come and ask questions. And then you give the reason why you're doing what you're doing. That's, that's the whole idea of preparation. Can you give someone reasons why the Bible is God's word? Do you have good arguments for that? Do you understand that? If someone says, well, no, it's just a religious book, can you explain to them why it's more than just a religious book. Why do you believe those unbelievable stories about a donkey talking? You believe that? You believe a donkey can talk? Yeah, I do. I don't believe they can talk every day. But I believe a donkey talked. Can you explain why? Or a... Uh, 5,000 people being fed by a child's lunch. And people becoming alive after they've been dead, sometimes for days. Jesus did apologetics. He told his people, you just go study, the, you just look at the Old Testament, they'll point to me. He gave them a reason to believe in him. And of course, he had his miracles too. <clears throat> Don't just believe me because I talk a lot. There's, there's evidences for me, and there's reasons why you should believe in me. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a defense to Christians, amazingly, about the resurrection. He gives a reasonable argument of why the resurrection did happen and why it is necessary and how foolish and senseless it is actually to not believe in the resurrection. He, he just laid out a defense for the resurrection. Paul did that. Prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, is one of the apologetics that God gave to us. And God, God said it. I'm going to prove to you that I'm God. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And then after it happens, you'll know that I'm God. So, And then we have the fulfilled prophecies now. 
So if someone asked you, why are you a Christian? What would you say? Why do you go to church? Why do you dress the way you dress? Why don't you go to public school? Why don't you participate in the military? And this is outdated now, but why don't you go to the movies? What is the reason for your faith in the Lord Jesus? This is part of loving God with all of our mind. You love God with all your soul, might, strength, and mind. I have to order wrong. But part of loving God with all your mind is to actually have your mind engaged and have a recent defense for what you believe. And Peter says, be ready. Put some thought in how you would answer beforehand. Uh, do some study. Discuss things with other people, with other Christians. And sometimes you say, well, what would you have said when you were in a situation and somebody did something like that? And you go talk to someone. Well, what would you have said? And you, you prepare. You develop. You grow. Peter is saying we should do this. This is a good thing. Every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense of his hope in Christ. And um, and I want to just give the, uh, not a disclaimer, but just a balance here. No one, and if you're a young Christian especially, but no one will know all the answers. And that's fine. Yeah, you you won't know. People will come with questions that you won't answer, and and you also have to know. That sometimes, uh, like Peter, uh, Jesus said, "Don't throw your pearls before swine; they'll, they'll trample them, and they'll turn again and attack you." And the proverb says, "Don't don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him or something." So sometimes, depending what for. What, what someone comes towards you with some kind of antagonistic question, it actually might be, you have to know wisdom. Sometimes it's better not to engage in them. All they're doing is wanting to drag you through the mud, and they're not listening. Then your spirit will be the preeminent thing they'll ever get, how you respond to that. So, so you should be ready, but there has to be wisdom. Sometimes it's best not to answer, not to give them the precious word, have them just trample them down, and all they do is attack you. Just that there. But every Christian should be able to give a recent defense of his hope in Christ, especially in a hopeless situation. A crisis creates the opportunity to witness when a, when a believer behaves in faith and hope because then the unbelievers sit up and take notice. Now, I don't know, maybe you know Tim, but there was this one missionary who went somewhere, and I, I, I just remember hearing about it. So he went under a farm field, and he labored for a number of years with no converts. And then his wife got sick, and died. And I think he was alone. He actually buried his own wife, had the own, this is what I remember, maybe I'm wrong, but he had his own funeral service for his own wife and buried her. Who was it? Do you know who? Okay. Really? Okay. Wow. And then after that, the natives started coming to the Lord in droves. And his wife had sacrificed just as much as this missionary had. Her heart for the salvation and the grief that they didn't come to the Lord was just as great. And after they came and he said, why didn't you come while my wife was still alive and she could have seen this? And they said, well, we knew, we heard you, missionary, we heard you, but and we knew that it sounded good for living, but we weren't sure if it was good for dying. Something like that. <clears throat> the missionary 
was ready to give an answer. So here's another way to be ready to give an answer. It's a crisis. His wife died. Now, to, to, to get ready for a crisis is not when you have the crisis. It beforehand, whatever work God had done in his heart, he was prepared that when this event happened, he was then ready to be the proper witness to the natives. So he was ready to give an answer. He had cultivated such a faith in God that when the trial came, he was ready. Horrible and painful as it was, but he was ready. And Peter says, we are to be ready. So it's more than just words. It's our character. And and I don't know how do you get ready for anything, but, well, sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts would be a very, very appropriate way to be ready. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of hope that is in you. And here's the last few words, with meekness and fear. There are problems with a know-it-all, aren't there? <laughs> Here is where we need to understand when we talk about being ready and giving answers to people. And I'm going back to words now. We are, our goal is to win hearts and not arguments. So when someone asks you a question or asks you questions with an attitude, Maybe even a little mockingly or maybe condescendingly. Oh, you believe in that. In the same way, we are not to return evil for evil. We are not to return attitude for attitude. That's what this means. Don't return attitude for attitude. Meekness is simply humility. Mild, unflustered. Maybe you don't know the answer. If you don't. Maybe he wins the argument for the moment, but he didn't win your heart. And your spirit may be the thing he remembers that night in his bed. The Bible expository exposition commentary says the witness must be given with meekness and fear, which means respect and not with arrogance or a know-it-all attitude. We are witnesses, not prosecuting attorneys. That was pretty good. We must also make sure, be sure, that our lives back up our defense. Peter did not suggest that Christians argue with lost people, but rather that we present to the unsaved an account of what we believe and why we believe it in a loving manner. Thus sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and you will ever be ready to give a reason of the hope that is in you to every serious and candid inquire of truth, after truth. So the summary of the message today is here. Do good. Who will harm you if you do what is right? But if or when someone does challenge or attack you, Don't be afraid or troubled. Rather, set the Lord apart in your heart as holy. And be ready to explain and defend your good actions and beliefs. Do so in an humble and respectful way. Well, that message would only have been about one minute long. That's the summary. That's that's, that's what I said today. And Alexander McLaren wrote, Only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? And here's another one. Here's here's, here's something to remember. Most religious systems and creeds are incapable of rational explanation because they are founded on some misconception of the divine nature. If the things that we do don't connect with the holiness and righteousness of God, if, if, if everything we do connects to our God, then we have an explanation. And there are some systems 
that are incapable of such an explanation because they have misconceptions of the divine nature. But may the Lord bless you as we learn together to, I, I guess the main point this morning is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. That is the most important thing that we can do. If you could, why don't we kneel for a word of prayer?